Welcome to Data Bytes. I'm Susan Wong. And I'm Jesse Chizeski Kay. Susan and I are two statisticians in academia, and we want to bring statistics closer to you. We'll touch on topics in big data, data science, machine learning, artificial intelligence, and the list may grow. In this episode, we talk about AI generating images of human faces and cats. And then we talk about a study that examined the relationship between skin tones amongst African-Americans and health outcomes. Let's get started. We have given some examples in the past episodes of the ways in which artificial intelligence and machine learning has been used in society um, things like improving medical diagnoses or even writing some journalism articles. Um, today we have another somewhat weird and somewhat cool application of AI. How about somewhat creepy too? <laughs> yes, <laughs> it certainly depends on your perspective. Um, so if you go to the website, um, this person does not exist, so all, all together, no spaces, this person does not exist.com you will be presented with an image of a person. And I had just gone to the website and there was this adorable little boy, maybe he was three years old, um, was pictured. And then I reloaded the page a few times and eventually got a picture of a woman, maybe in her twenties with this kind of like pink, red, orange highlighted hair. And so Susan, can you guess what these images have in common? Based on the name of the website, I'm guessing that these are images of people who don't actually exist in real life. Yes, that is correct. But uh, my goodness, when you first see these images, they look so realistic. Um, we'll see that when you start kind of dwelling on the pictures, you might notice some, some issues. But at, at least when you first look at them, um, it just they, they appear like someone you would encounter, you know, just walking on the streets. So the website was created by Philip Wong, who used an algorithm called StyleGAN, developed by the Technology Corporation NVIDIA. Um, there's another website that does a similar sort of thing for cats. That is, um, they make images of cats that do not exist. <laughs> that seems very, very useful. If you don't really have a cat and you want to look at a picture of a cat but not offend anybody, <laughs> Get a fake cat to put on your wall. Yeah, why not? Uh, that's, yeah, that's a lot of interesting applications. So how does StyleGAN work? Is, are there any details that are provided? Yeah, um, there's a paper that's posted online with details. A paper is called A Style-Based Generator Architecture for Generative Adversarial Networks. And it's by three authors, Karas, Lane, and Ayla. They're, um, they're all from NVIDIA. Um, the AI algorithm is what's called, as I said in the title, um, it's a generative adversarial network or GAN. And the basic setup of a GAN is that it's composed of two neural networks that, that are in a particular sense opposed or adversarial to each other. So what happens is one of the neural networks is generative. That is, um, for example, it will generate an image of a face. Then the other neural network looks at that generated image and assigns a probability that it's real versus fake and it's referred to as a discriminator network. So the discriminator network has um, access to uh, probably a large set of real images which is used for assessing the realness or fakeness of the generated images. So you have this one network that's generating images and then the kind of adversarial part is this other one that's basically going to say 
yes, it looks real or, or kind of no, it's not real, maybe with some assigned probability. So it's kind of like making a bipolar computer algorithm that plays a game of cat and mouse with itself. And <laughs> both sides are sort of improving at their game again and again as we train the model better and better. Yes. Yeah. Actually, that's a, a wonderful way to put it. I like that a lot. Um, yeah. So we're going to post a, a reference to a general introduction to GAN on the website if you're interested in just details about these generative adversarial networks. Um, and the, the style GAN, of course, has innovations over you know, the, the standard or straightforward application of GAN. And so the interested listener can also look up this paper. It's, um, it's available on um, what's called the archives. So we'll post a link to the PDF, or if you just Google the, the title of the paper, I'm sure you can find it. Um, but in, in particular, the, um, one of the innovations is that um, they use some techniques from the neural style transfer literature. Ah, that sounds a little familiar. For those of our listeners that were with us since the very beginning of Databytes, you'll recall that in episode two, we mentioned neural style transfer, discussing the application of, say, making a picture of Yale campus look like Van Gogh's starry, starry night painting. And in that episode, we also talked about how Google's Smart Replies uh, feature was helping to compose texts for us in emails or text messages. And for the listeners who are just recently joining us, you might take a quick listen of our early episode uh, number two. Yep, and, um, and we also talked in that, um, in that episode, or at least previously, about smart replies that really didn't always feel terribly authentic um, to our actual writing, texting voice, like just our general style of, of responding, for example. Um, and in a CNN.com article about neural style transfer, they, they similarly note a few places where um, the images are not realistic. Um, they said, oh, the images, by the way, of the, um, that we were talking about in the original um, website called thispersondoesnotexist.com. So, you know, in a similar way, you know, things aren't perfect. Um, they note a few places where um, things like this, the skin tone can be a bit off. And, um, and actually, if you look at a bunch of the images, you'll see that the, the teeth tend to be crooked or um, the clothes can be um, a bit blurry. I saw an image where it kind of looked like there's this like aura of a watch on the side of a person's <laughs> face. I, I, I was like staring at it for a while, like, is that a watch on the, but it was just, it kind of like blended in though. So it, it wasn't quite a watch. I don't know. And then there were a bunch where the um, person had one earring in an ear and the other ear did not have an earring and it seemed like there should have been one. Or there's, there's one I saw where a lady had a weird scar where it seemed like it should have been a dimple and it almost looked like a dimple, but it was, it was actually a, a, a scar type thing. So um, anyway, I, I was refreshing the page over and over and it was quite addictive. Yeah, once you showed the link to me, I played around with it too, again and again. And, and definitely, in, initially, when I didn't look too carefully, I really thought, hey, these are probably, these could be authentic photos of people I run down, run into down the street or something. And they all look very, very friendly. They're like all smiling and happy. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And uh, as with many AI developments, so there's a discussion about the consequences of this sort of technology. And, um, and when thinking about it, it just reminded me of the Jurassic Park quote, which has always stuck with me for some reason. But the quote is, your scientists were so preoccupied with whether they could, they didn't stop to think if they should. That is such an amazing quote. I, I don't know why we don't use it more often because it applies so often in our day-to-day -day life. 
Yeah, exactly. And, you know, a few of the potential negative consequences suggested are, are things like how a, a scammer could create personalities around the fake images and use it to cheat people. And there are also some connections here with making fake video and audio where it appears as though someone is saying or doing something that they're not actually doing or saying. And I don't think we're too far away having from having the technical capabilities to do exactly that. Um, if we just Google up the term deep fake, you'll find all sorts of articles telling us to really brace ourselves for a new era of fake things, videos, audio clips, news appearing all over the web. Yeah, it's, it's actually, it's very scary. Like just imagine having some fake audio or video of leaders and it, um, of whatever country declaring war or threatening other countries. And it actually looks like the leader is saying these words and it looks and sounds like the leaders are saying these sorts of words. Yeah, that would, that would have very major repercussions. And we would truly be in an era where fake news is inevitable and abundant. Yeah. A related piece of news that's been floating around lately, very similar, uh, concerns OpenAI. This is a nonprofit co-founded by Elon Musk of Tesla. And um, OpenAI has developed this fantastic text generator that they call GPT-2. And uh, it's a text generator. So effectively what it does is improvises on text. So basically you feed the machine a prompt of a few sentences, and then it's gonna to continue to write paragraphs or entire papers that assume those two or three sentences serve as the beginning of the text. Uh, should we share some examples? Yeah, sure. So here's one example that I saw. Um, the human would write in the following, a train carriage containing controlled nuclear materials was stolen in Cincinnati today. Its whereabouts are unknown. Uh, that sounds very dire, doesn't it? Well, the machine then responds with the following. I'll just read the beginning of it. It goes, the incident occurred on the downtown train line, which runs from Covington and Ashland stations. In an email to Ohio news outlets, the U.S. Department of Energy said it is working with the Federal Railroad Administration to find the thief. And it keeps going for several more paragraphs. And really, this just sounds like a news article you might see anywhere on the popular news outlets minus the typos, of course. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I mean, this is interesting. It's something that students might find useful for writing papers, or I guess rather not writing papers. <laughs> that is so true. In fact, this whole technology is so good at faking things that OpenAI has decided not to release it to the general public. It just seems way too dangerous for anybody to have. And what's also interesting is that text you know, sort of the, the thing that GPT-2 does, um, and video, Jesse, as you mentioned, the thing that makes text and video different from just generating pictures is that text and video data are sequential in nature. So like what happens in the next frame of a video depends on what happened in the current frame and in the previous frames, there has to be that continuity. Um, and likewise for text, the next word is dependent on all previous words. So in terms of what's going into a uh, a method like this. GPT-2 is trained to predict based on sort of reading in millions upon millions of web page text pages uh, to model the intricate interdependencies in the English language. Yeah, there's also so much heterogeneity between the kinds of, um, between different kinds of texts, like a Wikipedia page, for example, is written very differently from a, a news article or, or just a monologue. 
Yep, and in another dazzling example of GPT-2's abilities, um, one thing they tried was to feed in a very Tolkien-esque prompt. So it goes, Legolas and Gimli advanced on the orcs, raising their weapons with a harrowing war cry. Right, just like very brief one sentence um, fed into GPT-2, and the machine actually responded in a way that is, you know, remarkably very much like something that Tolkien might have written. So the, the machine says, the orc's response was a deafening onslaught of claws, claws, and claws. Even Elrond was forced to retreat. You are in good hands, dwarf, said Gimli, who had been among the first to charge at the orcs. It took only two words before their opponents reduced to a blood-soaked quagmire, and the dwarf took his first kill of the night. And it keeps going. This is like just crazy. I mean, I'm reading it, obviously, as much in character as I possibly can, but... <laughs> This is just remarkable how how differently, you know, how quickly GPT can sort of assume kind of a new writing style and just write in a way that continues the story. Yeah. I mean, in some ways, this is just like, it's really cool. And then on the other hand, it's just the consequences. Who, who knows what they could be? They could be um, just quite extraordinary, like we had mentioned previously. So, um, so anyway, so back to the, the fake faces though. So what, what are your thoughts on that? Like, is it good, bad, potential issues? I, I can just imagine, right, that with 3D printing also advancing technologically very quickly, so affordable, people even have their own 3D printers at home. I feel like we're not too far away from the day when people are able to print out sort of a fake silicone face mask of some computer generated person, they can just attach it to their face and then go around either committing crimes or living under completely fake identities without anybody noticing. Yeah. Oh, that's interesting. Yep. And, uh, and it would actually, it'd be really creepy to come across a, a fake face that actually looks like either someone, you know, or, you know, even yourself. But, um, but if this technology is going to move forward, it, it's important for people to be aware it exists so we can, you know, at least be on the lookout for abuses and that sort of thing. Indeed. If there's anything that we've learned in the past couple of years with regards to Facebook and, and other things, it's that we want to get ahead of the technology and think critically about the ethical ramifications so that lawmakers can proactively determine what needs to be done to make sure that the technology doesn't get abused uh, by third parties. Yep, exactly. Well, before we close off this segment, can I just give a really quick update on the Google Smart Replies thing we talked about back in episode two? Of course, that sounds great. Well, if you recall, at the time I'd just gotten an Android phone, and the thing that was remarkable to me was that when I text my husband, for example, it would keep on suggesting replies that were overly chirpy. Like there were a lot of exclamation points, and they were just all really positive. Sometimes smiley emojis were part of it too. And, and we said, it's not that smart. I mean, it seems like Google should have the ability to learn that I just don't typically text like that. <laughs> yeah, yes, yes. I, I remember. I remember that. Well, it's been obviously a number of months since those early days. And I do think now that there's been enough training data for Google to learn my style of texting. And more importantly, it has learned the content of my typical texts. So my husband, you know, he travels a decent amount for work by plane. So it turns out that a lot of times when we text, it's when he's about to board a plane. So, you know, we, we text for other reasons, but probably those texts are a lot more heterogeneous and miscellaneous and content. So I find that now, uh, more often than it would 
seem reasonable when he texts me something really innocuous like, headed to the checkout at the grocery store, Google will recommend that I say, have a safe flight. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh. Well, so yes, as you had said, it's, it's clearly learning something about, um, about how you respond in text. So I guess that's at least a step in a direction. <laughs> yeah, I guess we'll have to see how this transforms as we get more data. Maybe it'll get slightly better than re recommending that I wish people good flights <laughs> all the time. <laughs> Although you could just keep wishing people to have a safe flight, because why not? <laughs> a nice thing. Yeah, as long do. as it's a positive sentiment, even <laughs> if it's not applicable, right? <laughs> exactly, exactly. <laughs> So Jesse, we are both teaching intro statistics and data science classes. And while on a day-to-day -day basis, we may be doing some things that are quite computational or mathematical, there are probably just a few key ideas that we really want the students to walk away with by the end of the semester. Uh, yes, in indeed. Um, like For example, one of the most important things about statistics and data science that I, I would want my students to know is that the world is really filled with uncertainty but there's often enough predictability in the randomness that we can, you know, we can derive meaningful insights from what we observe around us. And there's also a two word phrase that I hear a lot that I think is a good summary of what else we want our students to walk away with. And that is statistical literacy. Inevitably, even if we wrap up our statistics career after taking a single class of intro stats or data science, our journey with data doesn't typically end there anymore. We are constantly bombarded with numbers in the news, uh, in studies, research studies that reportedly show that say drinking red wine might be associated with a lower risk of heart disease or that listening to Mozart when for a baby in a mother's womb makes the baby smarter on later on in life. We really want our students to feel equipped to think critically about studies like this. Yes, uh, we want our students to acquire a healthy dose of skepticism about the numerous scientific findings that they're going to come across throughout their life, you know, whether it's in an academic setting or plastered as front page news. Um, ideally, students should be able to, um, to talk through the pros and cons of the setup of a study and, and whether or not um, they think that the conclusions are valid. Yep, that's exactly sort of how we think about it too. And granted, we probably have to concede there's no such thing as a perfectly designed experiment or a perfectly designed study. The interesting part will be just quickly evaluating important features that describe the study and think through whether the methods sufficiently justify the results. And as for any possible shortcomings, to be able to critically think through whether these are minor or major grievances. So Professor Andrew Gelman at Columbia recently highlighted an intention-grabbing research study on his blog, and some of the points that he makes are really interesting to note. So, um, so what's the study about? So the study is about the relationship between skin color and tones, actually, of African Americans and health outcomes, and whether that relationship might be different by gender. This is a study described in a paper that appeared in the uh, Sociology of Race and Ethnicity Journal by Taylor Hargrove, uh, Assistant Professor of Sociology at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. Ooh, it sounds intriguing. 
Yeah, absolutely. Like in the way that she's really aiming to look at a problem that doesn't just categorize race dichotomously, right? So not just blacks versus whites, but sort of thinking for blacks is the skin tone measured on a more um, on a more continuous scale. Does that somehow relate to health outcomes? Yeah. So sidestepping Dr. Gelman's commentary to begin with. Um, You can certainly go to it if you wanted to. We will link that on our website. One of the exercises that I use in talking about city design in my class is to have students look through the abstract with me to try to identify as many of the important features of the study as possible. And so the, the abstract is, you know, usually pretty short, so it tends to be a low time investment. And abstracts are, are meant to serve as, it's kind of like the movie trailer for academic articles. So it should give enough information to convince you that the, either, you know, the methods, results are, are worth looking into in detail or perhaps not. <laughs> Exactly. So the abstract here um, does actually do a very good job of setting the scene, motivating the questions of the study. So um, just quoting from it, it says, although skin color represents a particularly salient dimension of race, its consequences for health remains unclear. So here the author is sort of saying this, the current state is that um, we don't know enough about how skin color uh, relates to health. So in approaching that question, the author uses four waves of panel data from a study called Coronary Artery Risk Development in Young Adults, or abbreviated CARDIA. And this is a multi-year study that sort of was collected from the mid-80s to the present, and the author has repurposed it to sort of address three research questions that are really critical to understanding the skin color health relationship amongst African-American adults. And there's like about 1,600 or so people that she examined. Okay, and let me just um, slow down a little bit. And could you explain to the listeners what um, what panel data means? Yeah, sure. So panel data is sometimes also called longitudinal data. Um, this is data that's usually collected on individuals that are tracked over time. So you can imagine when it comes to looking at health outcomes, why it makes a lot of sense. Um, if we want to look at, say, effects of inadequate exercise on health outcomes, rather than just interviewing subjects once about their exercise habits and then measuring, say, their cholesterol or blood pressure, we might have to wait a few years because the impact might be spread out over time. It might relate to what happens 10 years from now, 15 years from now, and so on and so forth. So there are a lot of opportunities for, for um, sort of measuring those health outcomes again and again. Okay, exactly. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, so, so four waves of panel data would suggest there are probably four time points at which measurements were collected. The initial measurement is usually called the baseline. So that first measurement is called the baseline. And then subsequent iterations are what we would just call follow-ups. Yep. And um, so if we dig beyond the abstract, we actually have to, in this case, to figure out the details, we would find that the follow-ups for the broader data collection for the CARDIA study occurred multiple times, um, but only the measurements in year 7, 15, 20, and 25 were used for this particular study of skin tone versus health. And in fact, year seven is really important because that's when the skin tone data was collected on all the respondents and all the other variables that we're interested in are um, taken from the subsequent years, 15 through 25. So you mentioned that the sample size for the individuals is more than 1600. Um, Do we have any sense or idea of how these, um, these individuals were recruited? 
That's an excellent question. And it's sort of one that we really prompt our students to think about um, for the purpose of seeing if this is actually something that'll generalize. If we do find anything interesting, is there sort of representativeness of, of the sample? Um, so if we dig into the data section, we'll find some more details that there were four field centers that sort of started out um, in the mid 80s participating in the cardia data collection process. These four field centers are located in Birmingham, Alabama, Minneapolis, Minnesota, Chicago, Illinois, and Oakland, California. And uh, these four field centers sort of use some form of random sampling of black and white um, men and women aged between 18 and 30 at the time. And um, I say some form of random sampling because sometimes it was um, by random digit dialing, which is kind of surprising. Um, and, and the key point is that they did try to control for imbalance amongst different covariates by just sort of selecting participants in a way that would have the same number, roughly the same number of individuals across age, gender, race, and education subgroups. Interesting. Um, so there's always been a question of random digit dialing, um, whether it's a, a good way of actually obtaining a random sample. Um, so for example, households don't always have a telephone, um, and so they would get missed, or households where people are, are working, um, maybe multiple jobs, say, you know, to make ends meet, they might get missed as well because they wouldn't be home to receive a phone call. Yeah, that's a really interesting point that I sort of thought about for a long time. Um, there's that classic story about the election of 1913 when the Literary Digest did political polling using contact information collected from sort of telephone and car registrations. And they predicted that FDR would lose by a huge landslide to Republican candidate Alf Landon, sort of 43 to 57, um, just based on data that they got from polling, um, from, from sort of dialing, right, sort of at random from these telephone and car registrations. And of course, we know how it all turned out in 1936, Roosevelt won, and the postmortem sort of figuring out what went wrong. Um, they found out that wealthy people owned telephones and cars. So by pulling their sampling frame in that way, um, they miss the not so wealthy types of people who probably were tending to lean um, more democratic anyway. So it is worth thinking about how this or does it apply into the mid 80s? I guess by the mid 80s, maybe most people who, um, who have, have landlines regardless of their wealth status, but you probably do want to ask, you know, whether people who pick up the phone and dutifully answer questions, are they, are they, as you say, sort of just not working? Are they of a certain demographic? Yeah, I tend to not pick up the phone and answer questions, at least, if people call me. Nowadays, this would be impossible to do because with so many spam calls, we just have this inclination to decline a call from anybody who's not in our immediate contact list, right? Like, I wouldn't pick up random phone calls anymore. Yep, exactly. Yep, me too. So, um, so for this um, particular study, what were the specific research questions? Well, for that, um, thankfully, it is mentioned in the abstract. So specifically, Dr. Hargrove wanted to understand the relationship between skin color and two different measures of health. So those two measures are what she calls cumulative biological risk, abbreviated CBR. And the second one is self-rated health. Um, and of course, Dr. Hargrove wanted to see if gender and other external variables like education and income level could explain the relationship as well.
So it sounds like CBR is perhaps a, a more objective measure of health then, and then the self-rated health might be, I guess, naturally classified as subjective, um, that is from the perspective of the respondent. Indeed. And I, I have to say there's a little bit of subjectivity to CBR as well. This is an index that is um, on a scale, discrete scale of 0 to 10, that is simply the sum of a number of indicators. So questions like, was the respondent's systolic blood pressure at least 130 milligrams millimeters of mercury, or perhaps, you know, was the respondent on high blood pressure medication? Uh, if so, you get a point. And another question is, was the respondent's waist circumference greater than 88 centimeters if female or greater than 120 centimeters if male? If so, they get one point again. So you kind of keep get the idea. They're adding together a lot of these uh, indicators that arise from questions that revolve around potentially arbitrary thresholds, right? There's no reason why 88 centimeters has to be a magic number for waist circumference. And you can really just say, you know, what if, what if you have two females, one whose waist circumference is, you know, 87 centimeters just below the threshold, and another one has a waist circumference of 89 centimeters. They're not that different from each other. And yet when it comes to contribution to the CBR, they are actually, you know, very different. So, so to that extent, I worry a little bit about, you know, whether CBR is a subjective measure, um, but I understand that they have to sort of condense the number of variables um, in, in this particular uh, scenario. The second variable of self-rated health is given on a scale of one to five, where the subject was asked how healthy they felt. So five meant excellent, one meant poor, and it turns out that so few people gave ratings of one, two, three, and four that this variable wound up being dichotomized to be either excellent or not excellent. That's so funny. That I, I feel like that ha actually happens with some regularity um, when people do this sort of self-rating. But, um, but anyway, so um, how was the main explanatory variable, um, the, the skin tone measured? Um, there also sounds, it, it sounds kind of like that might be difficult to objectively measure, but, but maybe not. Yeah, so there what they did was was interesting. They actually got a machine, a photovolt 577 reflectance meter. Um, this is a thing that basically you scan a patch of skin and they use it to scan the subject's upper arm. And the meter would show the amount of light that was reflected on a percentage scale, so from zero to 100%. Now, zero meant that no light absolutely was reflected, so very, very dark skin, and 100% meant that all of the light was reflected, hence light skin. And uh, we know that, you know, whites and blacks might have um, different distributions of, of this scale value. So what the, uh, what the author did was she sort of calculated the 25th and 75th percentiles of this reflectance distribution amongst the self-reported African-Americans in the study. And those were used as cutoffs to create a discrete representation of the skin tone variable. So the categories there are just light, medium, and dark. Uh, okay, so interesting. So the important variables are, are pretty much now all discrete. 
And this is what um, Dr. Gelman at Columbia really took wish issue with. And admittedly, I agree, it feels a little wasteful to obtain all of this granular information, only to throw much of it away just to make categories. There's an amount of irony to it that in doing a study that seeks to take a view that not everything is in black and white, the study just went one step better, modeling black, gray, and white. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that... Uh... That's interesting. So, I mean, so what were the findings ultimately? Any interesting results or? Yeah, so Dr. Hargrove reports on a number of findings in the abstract. Um, Dark-skinned women have worse health outcomes than lighter-skinned women. Um, there's a bit more that goes into how social, socioeconomics socioeconomic factors might explain away the difference. Um, and these associations were not observed among men. I would say there are a few concerns that um, that that I would be worried about with the study and jumping to those conclusions. But statistical methods aside, I worry about the representativeness of the sample for the population at large. Like for one thing, using a long-term study for purposes to study health outcomes retrospectively just seems a little bit risky. Yeah, and I mean, 25 years is a long time for these subjects to have to undergo follow-up. Yeah, if somehow I enrolled in a study now, because I've got so much time right now, don't I? Um, and I go, and suppose they told me that I have to come in and check in like every five years or 15 or maybe like just 25 years from now, right? Like, in fact, in this study, the, the frequency, the check-ins is more like every three to five years. Um, but in that scenario, I just don't know if I would care to go in and get measured. Things can change for me. In five years, I can be somewhere else. And it just would be a lot of effort to get into uh, to get the follow-ups done. So I was actually reading through the follow-up exam protocol to see exactly what's required for something like this for a follow-up. And indeed, you have to go to one of the field centers, one of the four field centers to get your labs done, unless you're lucky to live near one of the two field centers that will do some in-home visits. Wow. So, okay. So someone who deeply believes in the advancement of science, you would still have trouble following through. I mean, I, I would too. I mean, even if it was nearby, I'd be like, do I really have to go all the way, you know, 20 minute drive to a center and do the follow-up? But yeah, I have to say that honestly, a lot of us are terribly busy. And also just knowing that, you know, we change, right? Like when we're young, we feel like, oh yeah, it's no big deal to go and do a survey. As you get older, I imagine I would get crankier and sort of feel more like, you know, they're not going to miss me. They've got all these other participants in the study who are going to follow up. Um, it's, it's a huge commitment when people are now moving around the country a lot more than they're used to for work or for living in a less crowded neighborhood. It just wouldn't surprise me if this lack of follow-up is somehow related to, say, the standard of living, um, including whether one has access to resources that would make you more mobile, um, which then, you know, that all sort of relates to health outcomes, right? And I can see that this is probably an issue with a lot of longitudinal studies. I don't have a good solution. I'm not an expert in any of this, but I just feel like it would be better if it was possible to mail in a sample of blood and have the research facility sort of analyze your blood sample as opposed to make you fly in or go into wherever the center is to, uh, to measure you up. Yeah, I mean, to have to fly somewhere for, for that is just, like, who would do, I mean, apparently some people did, but. Even with compensation, I think I would have trouble with that. Oh yeah, definitely, definitely. So then what was the non-response rate here? 
So you'll recall initially I said the study looked at 1,600 or so people. Um, the Cardia study itself actually started with about 5,000 or so in the very beginning at year zero. Now about 25 to 40% of those were lost due to lack of follow-up. And then furthermore, Dr. Hargrove's study restricted the sample to looking at just the individuals that self-reported as African-American and had a skin tone test in year seven. So after all of that was said and done, that's how we arrived at about 1600. And also just to recall that there was a very nice degree of care taken to ensure balanced sample sizes across various strata for education, gender, age, and race. That was with regards to the 5,000 recruited at the beginning of the Cardia study. Dr. Hargrove shows a very beautiful table of how this all breaks down within the 1,600 or so subjects. And, and by the way, this is a great thing to do in scientific reporting, just being really transparent and showing context for the data that you have to work with. And from this table, we should take note that there are about 20% fewer male subjects than female subjects. And what's also interesting is that of the males that sort of remained in the study, um, they tended to be darker than female subjects. So looking at all of the differences within education and sort of the skin tone color, you'll find differences in the samples um, between various subgroups. So, and just as a final note, if you look very carefully at this table, you'll find the sample size totals to 1,800 or so. That's not even matching up with the 1,600. Oops, <laughs> those things can happen, I guess. A little typo. <laughs> yeah, but well, we're not here to badger the paper. What we're trying to do is just practice healthy skepticism, asking questions, and uh, sometimes asking questions to which we don't have the answer. Like, how do you do a multi-year analysis that inevitably, um, you know, might suffer from participant dropout? Yeah, statistics, who so used to have a bad reputation of being the science that can be used to misconstrue the truth. Um, so now I guess we're here to tell you that good practitioners will just question everything, all the different aspects of a study. All right, listeners, Jesse and I are going to go on hiatus for a little bit for our spring break. Uh, we expect to be back by the end of March or the beginning of April. So hope you have a wonderful couple of weeks and see you when we get back. Thanks for listening to Databytes. If you have any questions or suggestions or comments for us, please email us at databytes.podcast at gmail.com. That's databytes with a Y. And if you want to see the numerous articles that served as reference material for today's show, please visit our website at databytespodcast.github.io. Till next time.